0: Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Pastors around the United States are saying that more and more of those who attend their churches react negatively to concepts like love your enemies or turn the other cheek, saying that these concepts are weak. But those who say that this is weak have no idea how powerful love is. A few years ago, we were moving from Montreal to Colorado, we were driving our van. We had a U-Haul trailer behind it. We uh, stopped in St. Louis, and uh, we were going to continue driving to come here, to Littleton, to stay here for a period of time. And uh, it was early in the morning, and uh, we stopped at a a gas station and uh, filled up the gas tank, and I went in to pay. And when I went in to pay, uh, their system was down and the gas station attendant was kind of flustered and she said, I'm sorry, but uh, my supervisor is supposed to come back, She's supposed to be here in a couple of minutes and can, can uh, fix the system. Would it be possible for you just to wait until she gets back and then pay for the gas? I said, "Sure, no problem. And I said to my wife, you know, while I'm waiting here, why don't you just go and, and get coffee? And there's a certain Starbucks coffee that she wanted to have, so... It was a few blocks down the road, and so she hopped in the the van with our two children and our dog, and drove away. Uh, And I waited at the gas station for the supervisor to come back. And I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And The thing is that we were coming from Montreal, and so we'd canceled our cell phone plans, and we were going to get new plans when we arrived here. Uh, in Littleton, we'd heard about T-Mobile, and we thought it's worst, worth you know, changing nations and countries and cultures to ha- no. <laughs> but we didn't, we didn't have a way to communicate, which is fine. We, we were driving across country together in the same van, but after maybe 30, 45 minutes, the supervisor comes back. I'm able to pay for the gas, and then I waited, and I waited, and I was thinking, those lines at Starbucks <laughs> in the morning. But then I started to to feel a little uh maybe a little anxious. This is taking a long time. Um and then um an ambulance pulls up in front of the gas station, a paramedic gets out and walks in and says, Are you Rob Karsh? And I said, Yes. I said, Come with us. There's been an accident. And this is a a powerful moment in our lives as a family, and I'd I'd like to come back to that in a a few minutes. Um, My my wife and two children, my wife Martine, uh, my daughter Constance, and my son Caleb, my daughter is 17, my son is 19, they're both starting college this year. We lived here for three years, both of my children were baptized in this church. I had cancer and went through chemotherapy at this church. I got up and talked about that and going through that experience here at this church. And, and one of the things that I said was, um, I had stage three lymphoma, but even before I knew how serious it was, I knew that it was throughout most of my body. And, and, uh, and one of the things I, stayed, I said to you was, was Laying awake at night and wondering if I was going to live long enough to see my children graduate from high school, I had made that statement. And um, about three months ago, I'm driving my daughter to her high school graduation. She's all wearing this dress. She looks all grown up and all of this. And she turns to me and said, "Hey, Dad, remember, however many years ago, and you had cancer and you said that you were laying in bed at night wondering if you were going to live long enough to see your children graduate from high school?" I said. Yeah, I remember that. She said, "Dad, you're driving me to my high school graduation right now." Um, right after um, this is a number of years ago, when we were living here, right after chemotherapy, um, I had finished my last round about a month after that uh, prior to that, a couple of my friends invited me to go to Southern Colorado and uh, climb up some 14-ers, because that's what you do when you finish chemotherapy, right? <laughs> so. And me, and my wisdom that my wife likes to laugh at at times, I went, and, uh, and we started hiking up, and, uh, and we are going to try to do a couple different ones, and, and one was, was called Mount Windham, and, uh, and I still had my port, and I didn't have hair, and I was, you know, but it's all right. Um, and we started hiking up, and got up maybe about 90% of, of the mountain and, um, and I started feeling really dizzy and losing my equilibrium and having a hard time walking and, um, and um, decided that my family would probably like me to, to not fall off the mountain but to come back and so I so came back down the mountain and, uh, and my two friends, um, they, they did not climb up the other mountains, they came back down and um, and that's where the trip ended. We just, we spent the next day around our camp and, uh, and they were with me. And um, it, was, it was powerful to have friends that are, are there with you um, and give you the gift of their presence. And that kind of love. It was an ex- incredible expression of their love for me. And um, There's this concept of the Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when you read uh, writers like Jonathan Edwards and others and they talk about the Trinity and they talk about this this expression, this um, community of agape love that the Trinity is experiencing between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit throughout all of eternity. It's just an incredible image. It isn't just an abstract, spiritual entity, but actual, actual three persons that are experiencing this love amongst themselves. And this Trinitarian God is a generous God. And this generous God invites us to join in this experience of love. And so he creates this universe and it expands the opportunities for his generosity to share this experience of love with his creation. And it's just an amazing concept to think of this Trinitarian God who he he just wants to generously and extravagantly share this love and invite us into that community and that experience of love. And so we see um, he created this universe, he has this, this relational, uh, experience with the universe where we're dependent on him and we also are interdependent in our relationship with him. And Genesis 1.30 says that God saw all that he had made and said that it was very good. And yet we decided that we don't really need love and we don't really need to be connected to this Trinitarian God, creator of all things, who wants to invite us into His this community of love. And we went our own way and we went our own path we cut ourselves off from him. What I'd like to do this morning is share, share with you briefly the story of God's tenacious pursuing love all throughout history and all around the world because he loves you because this Trinitarian, tenaciously generous, extravagantly generous God was not content to see us remain cut off from community with Him in that love. And so there's this idea of the Missio Dei, the mission of God, it's Latin. And um, here's kind of a summary. In His great love, God the good Father committed to save and redeem redeem all His creation by the sending of His Son. The Father and the Son also sent the Holy Spirit, and the Missio Dei emerges from the loving and pursuing nature of God Himself. Therefore, mission cannot be conceived principally as an activity or a program of the church. Mission itself flows from this generous love of the Creator. So Christopher Wright says things like, it is not the church that has a mission, but the mission of God has a church. The Trinitarian God in his desire to share his extravagant love by restoring his relationship with all creation formed the church, the people, the body, a community of people who are called to participate in the mission of God. To invite others to follow in the steps of Jesus, communicating the unending grace, justice, and forgiveness that God accomplishes and unceasingly realizes in the world. Father, over the next few minutes, we're gonna see a lot, of, a lot of names, a lot of dates, a lot of different things that you're doing around the world, but I pray that we wouldn't feel overwhelmed by that, but instead we would be in awe of how you are persevering in your pursuit of your creation and people. And us that somehow we would see you differently that you would reach deeply into our hearts the pain that we felt the grieving that we've done the anger that we still hold toward injustice all of the other things father that your love would seep deeply into our soul and we would feel your, your presence ministering to us. And we're grateful to be here together in this space as your body, amen. So we're gonna run quickly through a few texts. We see Abram around 2000 BC And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, and we're going to have to go fast. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God chose Abram not for Abram's sake, but for the sake of all of us. The Trinitarian God said, no, I am not content to allow this barrier to remain. I will pursue you. I love you. Mount Sinai around 1440 BC in Exodus chapter 19 uh, Israel is referred to as a kingdom of priests and what is a priest a priest is somebody who connects a person to God right that's what a priest does and so Israel is referred to as a kingdom of people who were they were going to connect the creator and the nations so Israel was not chosen to be Uh, solely by themselves, but to connect the rest of the nations with the Creator. We see Joshua. Um, He did this so that all peoples of the earth might know, including peoples in Colorado, which was a long way away at the time. Solomon, he prayed uh, when he dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, that all peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. In Isaiah, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And then there's Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the cosmically transformative event that overturned the powers of evil, spiritual enemies, and death itself. It is the event that began a process that will culminate in the reconciliation of all things to the creator. He won't force us. We can still choose to turn away. But mysteriously, the culmination of the healing of all things to experience his extravagant love is coming. We see. I, There's a lot of text here, but I wanted you just to see the emphasis in Colossians chapter one. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and indivisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's making a point, right? All things, all things, all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And also, in addition to all things, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead because he's the first who was re- resurrected, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile, to heal that relationship reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So as we're walking outside and we're seeing the creation that God has created, that has value. That's part of the all things. And also, each person has inherent value being created in God's image, regardless of of height or weight or skin color or, or money or language or, or anything. Each person in front of you has inherent value, is loved by God, and God asks you and I to love the person in front of us as well. This is radical. And I just want to look at the John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. He's referring to to Israel at that point. But he says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen outside of Israel and I must bring them in also, the nations. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock, one shepherd. And so that's what we're going to see, right? One flock of where? One Mongolian, one Chinese, one uh, Congolese, one Coloradan, and one Texan. <laughs> Part of that one flock unified in Christ. And then we see this, this state, this, this, this uh, Pentecost. I'm going to bring this over here. And on the day of Pentecost, all who receive the Spirit are in effect, they become a temple. What is a temple? A temple is a place that joins heaven and earth. And so if you want to go to the place where heaven and earth come together, you go to the temple. And that is what, what, what is so radical about the day of Pentecost, because all who receive the Spirit are in effect, they become a temple. A temple connects heaven and earth, and at that moment, there is no more need for a physical temple. We are the temple, we are priests, and Jesus is our high priest. And the Holy Spirit begins working among all peoples in a new way, it's radical. And that's when we see, just look in Acts chapter two, it lists the people who were present at Pentecost, and when they went back home, Instantly, there were communities who were following Jesus in all of these places. From day one, this was a multinational, multilingual movement. However, these were all all Jews at that point in time. So the people present at Pentecost were from these areas. And then we have this story in Acts chapter 10 of Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius is not a Jew... He's a God-fearer. He has a dream, and this in this dream, in this vision, God tells him to go to Peter and invite Peter to come to him. Peter is in a different town, and Peter has this vision three times of a sheet descending from heaven, and there are these ritually impure animals on the sheet, and there's a voice that says, "Take and eat." The voice of God comes down, and of course Peter, being the good Jew that he says, he is, he says to God, you're wrong. I'm a good Jew. I don't eat ritually impure things. Then it happens again, and then it happens again. And three times Peter says to God, you're wrong. But he's quizzical. This is strange. He doesn't understand until the messengers from Cornelius arrive and Peter realizes God wants him to go to Cornelius' house, a non-Jew. He goes to his house. He shares the story of God come in the flesh, died and rose again to save and reconcile the nations to himself. And at that moment, Cornelius and his entire household, they speak in tongues the same way that what happened at Pentecost earlier. And Peter recognizes that the Holy Spirit had entered into and was accessible to Cornelius and his family in the exact same way as non-Jews as to the Jews at Pentecost earlier. And Peter's blown away. He doesn't have categories for this. God is bigger than what he thought God could have been. Have, have you ever experienced that? Something happens, and you're like, no God, you're not allowed to do that. It says right here in, you know, second Hezekiah verses 17, chapter seven. And that was Peter. And even when he goes back to the church of Jerusalem, they say, what in the world are are you doing? Peter going to this non Jew, this ritually impure house. And Peter says, listen, I didn't want to go, God forced me, but he he's doing something among the nations, not just among one people. This is not a nationalistic movement. This is not a movement about one language or one, one skin color or one, this is a movement that's breaking barriers in way that, ways that people are having a hard time understanding. And that's when the church at Antioch, the first non-Jewish church is established at Antioch right after that, around 39 AD. I love the story of this church in Acts chapter 11. Just really briefly, one of the things I love about this church in Antioch is we have no idea who started the church. These are random people coming in, but there's no apostle, there's no big name associated with the beginning of this church, none at all. It's, imagine this, it's the Holy Spirit doing it. (laughs) Something else about Antioch that I love, Antioch was divided into quadrants with walls, so the political rulers had gotten tired of the violence between people groups within the city, and so they decided to build walls to section off the different quadrants of the city um, in order to keep the peace. I'm just really grateful that our politicians today don't talk about building walls in that, I mean, anyway. So (laughs) I've been out of the country for a while, I don't know. So when when we, we study the history of the church of Antioch, we realize that the members of the leadership of that church and then the church itself came from different quadrants of the city. And when it came time to come and worship Christ together, they would leave their quadrant to go to another one to worship together unified in Christ. So what the politicians and the government was unable to do with political force or military force, they were unable to do. The gospel transformed and brought unity and peace. God was able to do and accomplish something through his radical love and the power of his spirit. God's love is powerful and his spirit is able to do things that we're unable to do. And then we move on for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I just want to as the gospel this message was being shared to the people at Antioch and on and on. For God so loved the for God so loved the, for God so loved the world these people are hearing for the first time, these, these uh, non-Christian, non-Jewish people who their experience was with the Greek gods and the, the Roman gods. And Rodney Stark says different things. He said this, this simple phrase, for God so loved the world would have puzzled an ed- uneducated pagan. And the notion that the gods care how we treat one another would have been dismissed as patently absurd. Seriously, when did Zeus or Thor care about how we treated each other? But the Christian God, he's different. And the corollary that because God loves humanity, Christians may not please God unless they love one another was something entirely new. I'd never heard of something like this before. Perhaps even more revolutionary was the principle that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and tribe, people different than I am, and even extend beyond the Christian community to people who are not current uh, followers of Jesus. These were radical concepts. The radical early church, there was generosity toward all people everywhere. Uh, There was an equality between genders, classes, and slaves in, in a messy kind of a sense. There was inherent value for each life. This concept of the image of God, whereas like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle had no idea of inherent value in people whatsoever. It was functional. If you're not strong, we get rid of you. If you're not productive in society, we get rid of you. And then you have these Christians coming along and say, no, each person has inherent value and is loved, regardless of their their abilities to function in the same ways as others. And it was messy and imperfect, and there are problems and scandals. It was wildly diverse. It was decentralized. It was unwieldy. It was unrecognizable as a religion. There were no temples. There were no sacrifices, there were no priests. There was no way to manipulate the gods. How do I twist God's arm if I can't bring him sacrifices and whatever? You can't. It was a radically new love-based value system propelled by the mysterious power and aims of the spirit for all peoples. The God of love come in the flesh of Jesus to die and rise again to reconcile all things. Are you feeling how radical this is? you mean to tell me with all of my issues and problems and all of this, I walk into your community and you're gonna love me? And you're saying that God, the creator of the universe, he loves me too. And so Mark in around 42 AD, he takes this message to Egypt. Paul and Barnabas on their first voyage, Paul and Silas in their second voyage, and we just see these communities of people following Jesus begin to pop up all around. Thomas travels to India around 52 AD, Persia, throughout the the empire of Persia, there are are communities of, of followers of Jesus, Paul has his third voyage around 54 AD, there are Christians, that are known to be in Monaco, Algeria, and Sri Lanka around 100 A.D. already. In Portugal and Morocco, 150 A.D., Fuganus and Duvianus are sent to Britain in about 167 A.D. on foot. They didn't have a camel back? No hiking boots? Believers, followers of Jesus in Austria in 174 AD. Um, There are communities of followers of Jesus among the Parthians, the Cushions, and other peoples within the Persian Empire by 196 AD. At Tertullian, around 197 AD, says this. He says, Christianity has penetrated every layer of society in North Africa. There are followers of Jesus among the rich, the poor, the free, the slaves, women, men, different people groups, all of it. And he says a little bit later, there were even disciples on the other side of the Roman wall in Great Britain in 208 AD. Remember, Remember how people said the things like turn the other cheek and love your enemies is weak? The Roman wall was built because the Roman Empire was unable, their their military power, the most powerful military force in the world at that time was unable to subdue people and go further than that wall. Further than that wall, they were in danger. So they finally just said that we're gonna build a wall, stay on this side of it. And where the Roman military was unable to go, people who were turning the other cheek and loving their enemies in the name of Jesus went and saw people transformed in the name of Jesus. Radical love and the power of the spirit is the most powerful thing in the history of the world and we're seeing it take place. In Syria, The first known building solely used for church activities is built around 260 A.D. Before this, there are no church buildings. And so there were conversations amongst people in the Roman Empire asking Christians, well, where's your temple? Well, I'm a temple. Jesus is our temple. Because they were seeing temples to all of these gods, but no temples to the Christian God. Why? Because... He dwells in us. We don't have to go to a place anymore. He comes to us. This is the tenacious pursuing love of the Creator, pursuing you. the first known rural Christian communities in Northern Italy. It's no longer solely an urban movement. It began as a movement going from city to city. The Bible is available in 10 languages around 300 AD, a mass Christian movement in Ethiopia around 332 AD. Jerome says in 378 AD, from India to Great Britain, all nations resonate with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, already. He was not aware of any known place in the world that did not have communities of people who were following Jesus. Already! Emperor theosis declares the Edict of Thessalonica in 380-80, which makes Nicene Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire and brands any other form of Christianity as being heretical. And what this does, this creates political entanglement where the growing relationship between Christianity and politics transformed it into a visible religion with a need for visible buildings as temples, visible rituals, and visible human priests to serve their political purposes. Do you see how this is taking place? Okay, the God of Christian God, we might be able to figure out a way to use him for our purposes. And that this reality, it amplified corruption as people used these visible structures to try to manipulate the Christian God for their own purposes. It also put Christians outside the Roman Empire in danger. So what that means is, so for instance, the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire, they were centuries-long adversaries. And when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire viewed Christians within its borders as spies, and traitors and we see it throughout history. Every time the movement of Christ begins to try to use political power for its own gain, the movement of Christ is corrupted every single time because God will not share his power, his transformative ability, his kingdom with anyone else on this earth. And then the Western Roman Empire disintegrates, and the Roman Christianity reorganizes as a de facto governmental, religious, and social structure. I'm painting with a really very a broad brush, all right? <laughs> trying to get through this in about the next 10 minutes or less. Um, Patrick arrives in Ireland as a missionary, one of the most incredible people in the history of the church, and the Irish version of Christianity brought the gospel back to Europe and beyond and often intentionally to live among the same violent barbarian tribes who terrified the domesticated Roman version of Christianity. The Roman Christians were terrified of the barbarians and the Irish who had, were one generation removed from themselves being cannibalistic, violent barbarians. I know we don't use that term anymore. When they walked into these barbarian tribes in Germany and Germanic tribes, The Irish missionaries were saying, hey, he reminds me of my Uncle Uncle Fred. (laughs) That big guy was terrifying. Yeah, absolutely, before he met Jesus and Jesus radically transformed Uncle Fred into a follower of Jesus. So yeah, I'll go talk to him, I'll go live among them. An awesome movement. Nestorian missionaries teach literacy to nomads in Northern China, Central Asia, Northern India around 535 AD with the arrival of Islam Christianity nearly disappears in North Africa in the 600s. Alopen, a Syrian Christian, leads a team of Nestorian missionaries to China to establish communities following Jesus there. And we see the the, Zien Stel, the Nestorian uh, stele that was uh, erected in 781 A.D. and documents 150 years of early Christianity in China. In 781 A.D. That's a long time ago. Irish missionaries arrive in Iceland, those hardy folks. That was pre-Guinness, I was told. <laughs> then Irish missionaries arrive in Norway around 900 AD. Princess Olga is baptized in Kiev around 957 AD. Nestorian monks visit China around 981 AD and they discover no trace of previous Christian communities. When I was studying the history of God's mission, it it just stunned me to realize that this can all disappear in one generation. There isn't a renewal of the spirit amongst each successive generation. 50 years ago, there there could be almost nothing left of the movement of Christ in Colorado. Or Quebec or elsewhere. But it doesn't have to be that way. During the First Crusade, the Christian army sacks Jerusalem, massacring 70,000 Muslims and Jews in the name of Christ. And I want to be really honest about the history of Christianity here. Around 1200, the Bible is available in 22 languages. In 121980, Francis of Assisi presents the gospel to the Sultan of Egypt. Just briefly, Francis of Assisi. He, he was transformed by Christ and by the love of Christ. He was taken, he was opposed to the Crusades, but he was taken to, to pastor the, the soldiers as they went there. And he saw atrocity after atrocity after atrocity. And so while they were in the Middle East, Francis would, would go from campfire to campfire amongst the Christian, quote unquote, military soldiers, and plead with them to come, repent and come to the love of Christ, to the Christian soldiers. And then he did something remarkable. He built relationships and friendships with with the Muslims and would go over and plead with them, repent and come over to the love of Christ because Francis was not with Christendom, nor was he with Islam. Francis was a follower of Christ, which meant he was often alone. Kublai Khan asked Pope Gregory to send 100 teachers to the Mongolian Empire, they never arrive. Franciscans establish contact with Sumatra, Java, and Borneo. Catholics arrive in Mauritania, Senegal, Gambia, Congo, Angola, and Mozambique from 1448 to 1508. You see, you see it growing? And then, and, and I really I wanted to, to make sure I included this part. The priest Bartolome de las Casas denounces in 1542. This is after Columbus arrives and Europeans arrive. The genocide of more than 12 million people by Columbus and other Europeans in the Caribbean. I don't know if you've read about that chapter. It's horrific. 1,554, 1,500 people become disciples of Jesus in Thailand. Samuel de Champlain found Quebec City. Woo! I like Samuel de Champlain. John Eliot. He translated the Bible in 1658 into a dialect shared by 14 Algonquin communities in Massachusetts. But, but there's this tsunami taking place against indigenous peoples in the Americas. And within 20 years, these communities are dispersed, and the dialect ceases to exist not long after. He gave his entire life to translate for the first time the Bible into an indigenous dialect in the Americas and A few years later, there's no one left who can read it. The population of native peoples in the Americas plunges from more than 60 million to 1492 to less than 5 million in 1900. The almost unimaginable death toll caused by the invasion and conquest of these lands by Europeans and their descendants constitutes the worst human holocaust the world has ever witnessed according to David Stenard. And then there's the Slave Triangle, where the 12 million people were kidnapped in the Africa and sold as slaves in the Americas. And most of the atrocities committed against indigenous peoples and Africans were committed by those who called themselves Christian. And I know a lot of us struggle with this, right? We really struggle with this. So I really wanted to, to bring it up this morning. And at some point we have to sit together and grieve as we acknowledge the evils committed in Jesus' name. Midst of that, God raises up groups like the Moravians who established communities centered on Jesus all around the world. A community of 300 people in Moravia over the course of 50 years, they established missionary communities in all these places. There were fewer people part of the initial Moravian community that are, than who are in this room right now. They did that. They were captured by the love of Christ. Rebecca Pratton, a Moravian, a former slave, she spent her life in this triangle traveling, preaching, teaching, leading, and many call her the mother of modern missions. You have George Lyle, the first American missionary, also a freed slave going from the United States to Jamaica. You have William Carey, who's often referred to as the father of modern missions, going from Great Britain to India. And then you have a guy named like, William Wilberforce. He became a follower of Jesus and then became the primary proponent to abolish the British slave trade. He was a politician and he, was he loved drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Rock and roll didn't exist yet. So anyway, that was his, uh... and he was like a multi-billionaire. He didn't care about anything. And then he met Jesus. His life was radically transformed and he was convinced that he had to leave politics. It was too corrupt. A Christian could not be a politician. He met John Newton. You know John Newton? He wrote a little known song, Amazing Grace. John Newton, the former slave trader, a wretch like me. Wilberforce went and met with John Newton, and Newton said, maybe God saved you and appointed you to stay, remain in politics for the purpose of abolishing the slave trade. And William Wilberforce spent the rest of his life fighting for that, and it was abolished. When one person is captured by the love of Christ, radical things happen. And that can happen with you. Where you are right now, God can work powerfully through you as you love the people in front of you. Do you know that? You have the story of Slokicha. Age 16, he became a disciple of Jesus in 1830 in Manitoba, then returned home to the Northwest to lead a multi-tribe movement of the gospel expressed through Negative, Native American cultural values, structures, and rituals. There are were, there were no buildings, there are no pews, there are no pastors, and thousands of Native Americans became disciples of the Creator's Son who came, died, and rose again. This is in the Northwest, but despite the significant movement of the gospel among the Native American peoples in the Northwest, American missionaries refused to recognize its validity because it was expressed through non European values, structures, and rituals. They say, nothing you're doing is of value. You need to build a building and pews and have a pastor in front. That's the only way to do it. They completely discounted everything that was taking place among these tribes. And then on the other side of the world, a little-known man named Hudson Taylor begins doing the same thing amongst the Chinese where he's integrated, he did integrate it into Chinese culture, adopting clothing, customs, and, and language, and presented the gospel through Chinese cultural values, structures, and rituals. And he was strongly criticized in the same way for doing the same thing. And, and we can't talk, we don't have time to talk about Amy Carmichael in India. Samuel Zwemer amongst uh, Arabs, Cameron Townsend and his passion for Bible translation, Watchman Nee who spent the 22 last years of his life in a Chinese prison, Elizabeth Elliot, who after a tribe in South America murdered her husband, took her daughter and walked back into the jungle to that tribe that just murdered her husband and shared the gospel and they put their faith in Christ. If a tribe murders a group of men Logic says we send in the military. And sometimes the powerful love of Christ leads a woman with her young baby back into that tribe through meekness and humility to serve them. And they see a kind of power they'd never seen before. They understood military power. They understood political power. But they didn't understand this turn the other cheek and... Love your enemies. business. That is more powerful than anything they had ever seen. Um, Operation World, they made a map of the expansion of gospel movements. From 1960, each uh, green point represents about 10,000 people that would be considered theologically evangelical. And from 1960 to 2010, this is what happened. So 1960 to 2010, and so part of me says, wow, this this is the reality of missionaries going into into countries and, and preaching the gospel and establishing churches. It's incredible. It's amazing. And we should celebrate that and thank God for that. And also... Today, we have people from the Congo going up to Europe, people from Mongolia going back, all uh, traveling for the cause of Christ to love people all across Asia, Um, from people from China traveling through the most difficult countries and establishing communities, followers of Jesus in the most difficult, um, most dangerous places. You have South Koreans going to Africa, you have Brazilians, Brazilians coming and starting new churches in Quebec. You have Americans going all over the place, and simultaneously, we see the extraordinary blessing of this expansion, the healing of people, families and communities living in love. The work for justice, compassion, and radical generosity throughout the world. Lives transformed for eternity. The name of Christ proclaimed nearly everywhere. The Bible is translated into many languages. There are many more to go. The movement of Jesus is global, from everywhere to everywhere, and belongs to Jesus and him alone. The movement of Jesus does not belong to any nation or people. It belongs to the creator of the universe, the reconciliation of the creation with the creator. But there are also problems associated with his expansion. This is us being honest, right? Problems of colonization, political entanglement, corruption, abuses, The problems and blessings associated with this expansion are intermingled everywhere those who call themselves Christians are found. We have political entanglement in the United States. Not only here, I'm just giving examples. We have um, abuses in South America. We have places like the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo. It is the most churched place in the world. There are more churches per capita than anywhere in the world. And simultaneously the most corrupt. They don't need more churches. We don't just need more churches. We need a radical renewal of the spirit amongst us. Without repentance and a radically Jesus centered renewal in each new generation, Christianity becomes detached from the radical love of Christ becomes a tool for those in power, becomes emptied of his purpose and power, becomes twisted and abusive, and eventually fades away in that area with good reason. And so let's look ahead, Revelation chapter nine. After this I looked and there was before me was a great multitude that no one could count, and this is what's coming, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne. And then again, we've got the Colorado Texan right there. They're looking at each other and they're saying, what in the, wait a minute, I love you. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And you're going to have Hutus and Tutsis. You're going to have Ukrainians and Russians. You're going to have Mongolians and Chinese. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, our God, our one God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And I saw a new heaven and new earth, a reformed heaven, reformed earth, something is going to happen. And I heard a loud voice saying, now the dwelling of God is with humanity. Remember the Trinitarian God who his desire is to invite us in to expand that that Trinitarian generous love with all of us, it's coming. He's talking about that here in the book of Revelation. And there was the tree of life that produced 12 crops of fruit. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And we need healing. So I got in the ambulance, and I arrived at this scene, and we were in the middle of this massive, this huge uh, intersection, multi-lane intersection, and I saw our van in the middle of the intersection. The front of the van was smashed in, and I looked over and I saw my son and my daughter and the, our dog standing happily with a, a police officer, but I didn't see my wife until I looked over and I saw that she was still sitting in the van and holding onto the steering wheel. And she had told everyone that she wasn't going to get out until her husband got there. And so the body was dented in, so I, I took the door and kind of bent it back. And, took her out and she, she was bruised but she was okay and just took her in my arms and, and held her. And I've just got to imagine that that's how Jesus has got to see us sometimes. We're sitting there and we're frozen and we're hurt. And he comes up to us and he's, he's powerful but he's loving and he's gentle and he opens the door and he can take us in his arms. And for me, that, that's one form of this pursuing love. It's gentle and meets us where we are. Imagine you in the car Maybe that's where you are in life right now. And Jesus is there and he's gonna open the door. He's, he's, he wants to take you in his arms. Or maybe maybe you're like I was seven years ago and, and you had these goals in life and you're going up the mountain and, and nothing worked and everything fell apart and now you're just laying down exhausted. And just like my friends did through other people of Jesus sitting next to you and and ministering to you and loving you where you are in that exhaustion. This is the God who loves us and loves you where you are right now. And right now, his spirit is working in and through each one of us. And one day, they will see his face, One day, we will see his face. That's going to be an awesome day. The one who came and walked and lived and died because of his love for you and I, we're going to be able to see him face-to-face. And so as we prepare for community, I'd like to invite Alex up to say amen and come, Lord Jesus. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.